Yal is trying to build a foundation so we can eventually get there, but we understand, you know, you got to pay your dues first. You've got to work hard. You've got to build a platform. And then from there, you can start shooting for the stars. We have to find a way to talk and have dialogue and be tolerant between other views. You have to have open dialogue, and that's where free speech is so important. Consent's a very important thing, and today in the Me Too movement, it's been very important because I think it's really opened up a lot of eyes. Cannabis is a healing herb. We as the people, we need to stand up and make a move. If you committed sexual assault, doesn't matter when it was, you should be held accountable for that. However, we have to make sure that we actually make sure they committed sexual assault, and we have to make sure that all allegations are verified. So put in these programs thinking that it'll help everyone, but what they forget is that the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions. And I think that's what this whole movement is all about anyways, is uh, trying to be open to ideas. All right, welcome to another episode of Liberty Talks Podcast. Today we have special guest, Grayson McNew. Hi there, Mike. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. Thanks for coming and uh, being on the program. Uh, for those of you that don't know Grayson, Grayson and I worked together last year on a Operation One at the Door campaign for Dirk Deaton. We ended up getting Liberty Legislator Dirk Deaton elected in Missouri. Um, and so from there, we have become friends and are also working together here recently again um, in liberty politics. But uh, Grayson is the founder and was the chapter president of College Republicans at St. Mary's University in Maryland. And he also has worked for a state senator and a few other things. So Grayson, tell me how you got involved in politics. Yeah, so I, I got involved when I was actually relatively young and I, I remember the story and how it happened pretty well. I was sitting in my 10th grade social studies class and the teacher got up in front of the room before she started talking and she asked if there was anybody that wanted to do some work with a local campaign, some guy running for governor. I really wasn't involved. We don't talk much about politics in my household. Um, so I was like, oh sure, I, you know, can use the volunteer stuff at that point and I figured it looked good on a college application. Well, I went out and I, I did it, and ironically, uh, the first campaign I ever worked on, I volunteered to go knock doors, and it was for a Democrat. Um, Boo. <laughs> well, he was a conservative Democrat, which is why we lost in Maryland. Um, but the irony is, after I got done with that campaign, I volunteered with uh, the Republican nominee, Larry Hogan, the current governor of Maryland, uh, and helped him get elected. And it's sort of, well, I guess I really wasn't involved in politics for a few years after the 2014 governor's election in Maryland. And it wasn't until I actually founded that college Republicans chapter that I was really, you know, getting back involved into it. And then, um, ironically, through that, I, I met our local state senator that our college is in. And I basically, I, I sent him an email and I'm like, look, we'd really appreciate it if you could donate some money or come out and help us with, uh, you know, some stuff so that way we can be, look a little more official as a group. Because we were just starting up, you know, it was the 2016 presidential election. Everyone was running around like chickens with their heads cut off. It was crazy. And no one wanted to see Republican anything. Like no, I, I, can, I can totally uh, relate to that because I started up my Young Americans for Liberty chapter that same exact year. Yeah, it was a tough time for people across the country trying to do anything basically right of center. Right. Um, but we started up and I had, he was like, hey, look, come down. I work uh, down the road uh, right now. You can come on over. I'll get you lunch and we can talk about it. So I went over, we had lunch and he's like, you know, I like you. I like how you talk. I'll give you the money for your club. I'd like to see what you guys are doing down there. And at the end of it, he said, but you got to do me a favor because I don't give out free money. You got to come work for me in Annapolis, our state capital. And I said, oh, sure, I'll go do it. You know, you're offering me a job with pay and then giving me money for my club. So it was a win-win in my eyes. 
damn Grayson, you're like <laughs> Yeah, trading favor trade trading favors over in a restaurant somewhere. Yeah. Shoot, it sounds like a win win for you. You got you got a donation to your college uh you know, college Republicans chapter and you got a job. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And that was the first time I'd really done anything in the policy side of politics. And that was in that was about two years ago. Um and that was a whole different world. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, Maryland is very interesting that we have very short 90-day legislative sessions, and all the legislators basically live in Annapolis for those 90 days. And a lot of them are all very good friends. I remember we would sit, be sitting in uh, a hotel lobby, or we'd go over to someone's house, and we'd play cards and drink, and you'd have Democrats and Republicans all sitting there. And they'd all be talking smack about each other, and they'd all be having a good time. But you don't see that nowadays. You don't see, you know, Kamala Harris sitting there and having, you know, brunch with uh, Rand Paul. It just doesn't happen nowadays. So, Grayson, I have some friends that have worked in the state legislature before. Um, but, you know, I'm not a policy major myself. So for young activists that listen to the show that are interested in working for a state representative or state legislature, um, could you explain the type of work you did for your senator and the type of, uh, you know, things that the senator expected of you? Yeah, so I, I was in a very unique position because my state senator was doing something that literally no other state senator or, you know, delegate had done. And that was taking the lump sum of money he was given to pay for interns and other staff. And instead of having four full staff, he cut a staff position and took a little bit of that and gave it all to college interns. So he was able to have five college interns. We had a massive office compared to basically other, you know, the committee chair, she had a staff of four. So we were a freshman senator and we, all, we had a bigger staff than the committee chair, um, which allowed for us to do a lot of things that state senators don't do. So. Most of the time, if you get a, you know, a job with a state senator, your local representative or delegate, they'll have you probably doing legislative analysis. And that's what I did, but we did it in a little, bit, a little differently. So we had four uh, legislative analysts that we used, um, and we have four standing committees in the Maryland Senate. We have education, health, and environmental affairs. We have judiciary uh, and budget and tax, and the other one I'm forgetting the name of right now. But I worked in education, health, and environmental affairs. And that's where Steve was, and that's the committee he sat on, who's the state senator I worked for. And I got to work with him in that a lot, and we were the catch-all. So basically anything that wouldn't fall into taxes or changing local laws or jurisdictional stuff, we would basically fall under and come into our committee. So we would see about 6,000 pieces of legislation in a good year in 90 days. So we were always encumbered, which is why you have these legislative analysts. So the big job is being able to see what's coming across his desk, picking out stuff that he needs to be aware of, bad bills and good bills, and then sort of giving him advice on what to do. And that's what I did. I monitored everything that went through EHE. The interesting thing we did was that we had those people in every other committee. We called them our committee spies. So that way we could collect testimony and basically make sure that no bad bills were getting passed through any of these committees, regardless of if we were on there or not. Which didn't give us a lot of friends because we weren't, uh, we were kind of fighting the Republican establishment there. There's a funny story behind that to why Steve lost his election. Isn't that uh, usually how it is if you're? A core conservative or a liberty-minded Republican, you're usually spending most of your time fighting your own party in many cases. Yeah, we were we were fighting. Well, being in Maryland, we have a plethora of liberal legislation that comes through. Especially being that Donald Trump was our president and still is our president, that every liberal was running around on every legislative session wanting to pass all these bills that did absolutely nothing for the state of Maryland and were entirely designed to, you know, pat them on the back as Democrats and be like, oh, look, we're doing these good things that go against President Trump, like requiring him to release his taxes or requiring that 
you know, we can't, there was literally a bill that went through that said, if you're accused of sexual assault, you can't show up on a ballot. So just totally circumventing, you know, our judicial system just off of pure speculation. What in the world? That's crazy. I heard of something like that happening in California here recently um, yeah. where they, they said, well, if the president doesn't release his tax returns, he's not going to show up on the Well, they ballot. passed that. Right. Yeah. And states do have the right to basically limit and have pretty autonomous control over their, their ballots. Of course, it's not something that I would recommend because – it, well, I, I'm torn on that subject there. I believe it. I mean, you know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because it's a it's a power that the state has, but it also it seems like it's uh, burdensome to our you know democratic republic. Yeah, and the big problem I have with it is that while I could, I mean, it states already have the right to do this. It's not that their right to do it is in danger. The issue I have with this stuff coming about is that it's coming about from these very dark crevices of the Democratic Party that are doing it just to spite Trump. They're not saying, oh, we need to do this because, you know, this is what should be done. They're not trying to set a moral standard. They're trying to do it because they hate President Trump. Um, if it came from, you know, someone's, you know, from a scientific standpoint, from someone who was looking at everything and said this will be beneficial to candidates running for the office of the president if we do this and we think it's going to help our voters. That'd be different. And I think a lot of people could fall, you know, in support of that. But, you know, in California and Maryland and all these states that are doing it, they're not using logic and reason to justify what they're doing. I think it's interesting that you bring up that point because we see on a, on a national level that, that many Democrats have gone, you know, far to the left, that CNN has gone off the deep end and uh, they're willing to do almost anything to attack and hurt the president, even if it means hurting themselves. But not only on a national level, because we're here talking about state politics. Yeah. It trickles down a lot. And that's it's got its benefits, but overall I think it can be a little sad because one of the things that I, I love about Maryland politics is that we're able to actually detach ourselves from a lot of these national issues, which sounds crazy because D.C. is there. <laughs> it's right in our backyard. But we, for a long time, we were Democrats without being progressive. I come from a small town called Dundalk, right outside of Baltimore City. And we basically built ourselves on steel. Bethlehem Steel, GM, and GE. Those were the companies that built the town. And then happening in basically from the 80s to the 90s, all those companies left. They stopped doing anything in the United States in general, or the companies just went belly up like Bethlehem. They employed 90% of the population, worked at one of those three major factories, and when they just sort of disappeared, there was this big hole. And unions were huge in my town, so everyone was Democrats. But now we're, we're starting to see people switch over from Democrats to Republicans, and a lot of Political scientists in Maryland are saying that this is sort of the canary in the coal mine for what we're seeing across the country for businesses that are leaving. In fact, we switched over so Republican so quickly, it took one election cycle, and we had every state office and every local office elect Republicans. One cycle. Wow. That's one state senator, three House of Delegates members, and four different city council positions. All Democrats lost overnight. Um, President Trump in 2016 visited Dundalk, the only town in Maryland that he actually stopped in to visit. He was at a summit where for veterans or police, I can't remember, in Baltimore City, and he stopped over and met with my local state senator, who's now running for U.S. Congress. Um, and he's not the most liberty-oriented guy, but he's probably the best Maryland would ever get in uh, Congress. And It'd be nice if we get another Republican to help Andy Harris, no matter how, you know, establishment Andy Harris might be. Yeah, so you said that your politics, you know, they've switched from Democrat to Republicans. How did Donald Trump's presidency affect your state politics, besides the Democrats going crazy? Um, so one of the things that I noticed working in our state legislature was that there was a lot more hostility between Democrats and Republicans. 
Um, the Me Too movement has definitely impacted us a lot, which we saw, I think, really come out of 2016. Um, and that's gone on its own witch hunt where people basically, you know, and there's, there's women who have definitely have a, you know, their justification for calling men out for doing terrible things. And it's great that we have this movement, but there is definitely a lot of people who use it to simply tear people down. In Maryland, we saw the good of it. Our state legislature had been riddled with sexual harassment for decades. My chief of staff left her former office um, because of sexual harassment from a, another state senator who was uh, actually, he got voted out of office not long after she left. But it was something basically that everyone knew was happening, but no one did anything. And when I started to work there, they had a sign a paper and said, congratulations, you've completed sexual harassment training by signing a piece of paper. And that's all we had to do. And being through, you know, going through a liberal arts college, having to do sexual harassment training and Title IX training every year was, yeah, you know, it was a relief. But after, you know, working there for a few weeks, I kind of realized from hearing and talking to a lot of the other staffers that this was definitely a big issue. And that's probably one of the things that I've seen affect most is that sort of that pivot on how we've sort of treated that. And like I hinted at earlier, the sort of just relations that Democrats and Republicans have had most of the time it's been a very cordial relationship. But there's a few who were electing more progressive Democrats, specifically in Baltimore City, Montgomery and Prince George's County. Those are very very big government areas, obviously, especially in Baltimore City, that are now electing more and more very progressive young Democrats. They've, I think Baltimore City has two delegates who are under the age of 21 that they've elected to serve them. Wow. Which is very interesting, and it does provide hope for, you know, a younger voice to get up there and, you know, actually control most of the Maryland Senate and House of Delegates, which is pretty much controlled by AARP-eligible folks. So I want to I come back to Baltimore City, but I think it's interesting that you brought up the Me Too movement because a lot of conservatives will just talk about the negatives of it, you know, what happened with Kavanaugh, what happened with other folks. Um, Don't get me started on Kavanaugh. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> um, so, but I think it's really cool because you said, you know, you saw the good side of it. It actually brought out, you know, some of the demons that were lurking in your state uh, legislature. And that's something that actually John, my co-host and I, um, we actually talked about a lot on uh, the Isaiah Carey program. Um, and we talked about how, you know, consent is key and how ultimately, you know, what's going on in the Me Too movement is, is a very good thing. However, obviously it can be hijacked to... Um, which would be like including what happened with Kavanaugh. If we're going to um, the accusation of folks without any evidence, exactly. You know, if we have to, I don't know the exact quote that, that my co-host John said, but he said, you know, we have to make sure that you know we give people due process and actually make sure that they actually committed sexual assault and not just go upon accusations. Correct. Like I, I, I know I mentioned it was a witch hunt, and you can see that in Kavanaugh. But there's definitely a lot of good that's come out of this whole movement. There's been a, a veil that has been removed off the eyes of many Americans as to harassment in the workplace. I mean, you're there to work. You're not there to be harassed, and you're not there to deal with that. No one should. But when we have things like Kavanaugh occurring, we do have to take a step back, and we have to be like, whoa, while this is bringing a lot of good— we need to make sure we have our rules in this movement when it's coming up to make sure that we're just not needlessly destroying lives. Because if you're needlessly destroying lives of someone who could be innocent, then what better are you than someone who actually, you know, destroyed a woman's life by, you know, not getting her consent and raping her? It's it's a double-sided coin. And with Kavanaugh, I mean, I always tell people there was no one who won that. Kavanaugh may be a Supreme Court justice now, but He's never going to be able to take his wife and kids to a restaurant to eat somewhere ever again. Not only did it erode the public's faith in him, but now he's a Supreme Court justice. So now all those Democrats and those liberals that really hated him, they're never going to trust anything that's got his name on it that comes down from the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. 
And that's a little concerning, especially with all the stuff we see now the Democrats are saying in the national, you know, debate stages that we've had over the past month, um, you know, regarding health care and the Second Amendment. You know, we do have a lot of conservative justices, but if half the country doesn't believe that their opinions are valid and actually, you know, coming down from the highest court in the land, that could lead to a big issue. It's pretty problematic, right? Yeah. Um, so I want to get you know, back to what you, uh, to your, to your career and what you've done. But first I want to ask you, what are you, what do you think about Donald Trump's comments regarding Baltimore city? Ha. Well, I will tell you, I have never seen so many people say that Baltimore is rat free and that it's a lovely place to live <laughs> than in the 24 hours after he said those comments, you could probably go back on all of their Facebook and Twitter pages and scroll up just a few hours before he said that, and they'd probably be saying the same thing. Baltimore has an immense amount of issues with it. And they are just, they've been issues for decades that no one's tried to fix. It's been controlled by Democrats, so their solution is more government. Let's put more policies in place, which we can't afford because we're taxing the hell out of you. And then they, everyone who's got money is leaving because they don't want to pay the taxes. It's ridiculous. Their solution, it's it's a very circular logic. Let's help people by creating big, you know, these these agencies and all these programs. More taxes, more regulations. More taxes, and that'll help these folks. While the folks who actually can help people with money are now leaving because you're taxing them for no reason. They're getting the hell out of there. Yeah. It, it, it's sad to see, and, you know, I think maybe it'll do us some good, actually. You know, it's been a while since someone gave Baltimore a reality check, and I think we needed one. Yeah, no, I think that that situation is interesting, and actually, I was talking to my uncle about this uh, just actually today, and he he's more of a liberal, uh, and I asked I asked him his opinion on it, and really, my biggest issue is you know like I I criticize the president when I think he needs criticism. I think there are valid attacks you can throw at the president, but I thought that the things that CNN and MSNBC and many more liberal progressive leaning news organizations said was just blatantly lying to the American people, such as saying, oh, for example, what I, what, the, the way I see it is they, they will take Trump's words and they will act like he's not speaking English and they'll put it in a translator and say, well, this is what he meant. He said that Baltimore City is a rat-infested uh, city, right? So, but what he meant was that when he used the word rats and varmint, he meant black people. He meant people of color. Dog whistle politics. Yes, and and infestation is is racially charged. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Grayson, but I never I never knew that saying something was a that you know there was a crime infested neighborhood that was racist. I never knew that. I mean, look, we could we could see you know, I I agree. First of all, let me preface this. I think that any president we have should take equal criticism from his supporters as well as praise for what he's done i think anybody who gets into the point where they think someone is so wholly good they cannot commit sin is a very dangerous precedent that you go down on a road people should hopefully people will look back on trump and look at the the first uh step act look at a lot of the other stuff that he's done without the without the use of congress and they'll look at that as good things hopefully instead of just putting all of this stuff that he's done in this bad category and saying, oh, well, he just might as well put it in a box and throw it in the river and forget about it. But we forget about all the bad things Obama did because he was a Democrat and because people liked him. But, you know, he utilized more drone strikes than any president we've had before and infinitely more than Trump has used. He began mass deportations like Donald Trump is getting all this negative attention for and, in fact, put children in cages a lot sooner and a lot quicker than Donald Trump did. So when people use the accusation of dog whistle politics to say that, you know, Trump is actually meaning this as opposed to that, yes, there is some credibility to what they're saying. However, they do not really understand the issues they're talking about. I guarantee you, no one who's on CNN or any of that stuff actually has any idea what Baltimore is like. We have people walking down, you can walk down the street, you can walk down, you can walk down Gay Street, you can walk down any other big street that we've got with bars and with all this stuff on, and you can see 
homeless people sitting around on the sides of the road, sleeping there, eating out of trash cans. You can see folks living in houses with asbestos and lead covering, every orifice of anything that's painted and all over the roofs. There's a lot of problems. And instead of blaming and pointing fingers at each other, saying, well, you're a racist and you just hate us, be like, no, we actually have some issues. Let's try and fix them. Or why don't you help fix them, actually, since you're the president? You know, you think it's bad? Well, let's get rid of this bad stain on America then. Right, and, and that's, what I, that's what I was talking to my uncle about. I was saying, hey, look, you know, I think there are some arguments to be made. Even in that situation, like you said, why doesn't the president do something? That was something my, my uncle had told me. And, and I said, you know, those are legitimate criticism. Those are legitimate arguments. But however, what these liberal media, you know, uh, organizations are doing is they just, they tell blatant lies. They, they tell the people their own narrative that they want them to believe. And I just, I just find that really... It's disheartening. Um, yeah, right? I mean, you you watched, you used to watch the news and you didn't question what was on it because they weren't leaning so hard into one side or the other. They were like, here's the information, you interpret it. Now, the news gets the information, they interpret it and give you whatever the hell they think is appropriate. They don't let you sort of figure it out for yourself. And this is a great example because they're not letting you figure out what that quote means. They're being like, this is actually what it means. We're not letting people think for themselves anymore. Here's another example of President <laughs> Trump yeah. and his racist <laughs> rhetoric. Oh, gotta love CNN. Oh, yeah. Um, a friend of mine and I used to watch it every single day back in 2014, 2015, and then we both realized, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it's going off the deep end here. Yes, um, which I actually need to, need to get him on the podcast sometime to talk about that because I just think it would be super interesting. Um, but hey, let's get back to your career. So you've talked about um, what you did to college Republicans. You talked about uh, what you did with the state senator that you were a legislative intern with. Although I think you told me something about you working with the governor or the government appointing you to something. Yeah, so I kind of put it in an application for some board or something that I completely forgot about. And then one day... Um, I got a call from the governor's, they call it the governor's office of crime control and prevention. And they were like, look, we are trying to get some youth folks under the age of 28 who are passionate about reforming criminal justice. And we want to have the governor appoint you to this board so that way you can give us old folks basically an idea of what's actually happening. And I said, sure. Um, in Baltimore, we've actually got a lot of really fantastic programs that are designed, basically, to try and teach people other skills instead of, you know, going back into a life of crime. I'm, I'm a big sailor, and one of the things that we do down there is we have a program called Living Classrooms in Baltimore. And one of the ships that they have, they actually will take kids who are sentenced to community service for, you know, doing something wrong in the community and they'll take them aboard these ships and they'll teach them carpentry skills something that is actually a very valuable trade you can make good money in the marine industry if you understand how carpentry works on it because not many people do it anymore it's like learning how to weld or something like that they try and hand these kids not only something that they could turn into a hobby, but something that they could potentially turn into a career in a safe environment away from, you know, what they may have at home or in their neighborhood. Because, you know, the unfortunate reality is there's a lot of places in Baltimore that you could walk down a block and you're no longer in a safe place that you can uh, walk. But I'd done stuff like that. I'd run a program uh, down, well, I used to run a program down in St. Mary's called Teen Court. Um, and basically what that is, is if you are under the age of 18 and the police are called because you've done something stupid and they write you up and say, Hey, we're going to have to arrest you or whatever. Well, instead of you going to court, you come to this teen court thing and it's basically a jury of your peers. They're actually kids for you know, anyone under the age of 18 who have been through the program and they will hear your case, they'll hear the effects that it's had on the person who you've so wronged, and then they'll actually create sanctions and punishments for this kid. Punishments is not something, it's sanctions, that's what we, what we call them because we don't want to view them as punishments. But it's community service, it's writing letters of apology, 
Um, it's providing an alternative to getting them into the criminal justice system and getting them a record. And being in the the litigation age we're in, where our parents, you know, want to sue everybody for anything that can go on, you know, oh, he punched my kid. Oh, well, I'm going to sue him instead of, you know, actually giving him a pair of boxing gloves and letting him go at it in the yard or something. We like to sue people. So I thought this was a very, you know, great opportunity to try and alleviate some of the stress on the judicial system in my county and provide kids with, you know, a hopeful future. So what we do on this committee that I was appointed to by Governor Larry Hogan, it's a five-year appointment, I've got three years left, is we basically fund those programs. So we have a budget of a couple million dollars each year that we sit down, we read all these applications, and we say, you know, based off of what you've told us, we think this is a sustainable program. It looks like you're going to do well. We think it's effective, and we think it's in an area that matters. But one of the things that I love about it that really is something interesting in a, a state like Maryland um, is that we don't give these for more than three years. So you cannot be sustained by the government in these programs. You have to become self-sufficient. So each year you can apply for it for three years consecutively, but you have to come back the next year and show us that you're finding funding to pay for it for yourself. So you can't simply leech onto the government and expect to be there forever, which I think is a, a great alternative to government funding. It's like, oh, well, we'll give it to you now, get it started up because it's great, but you know, make sure you can get your, your ducks in a row and figure it out to pay for yourself. Sounds like you're putting you know, checks and balances into play. And yeah, in that crazy way, idea right? of checks and balances existing <laughs> in government. Who would have thought? <laughs> Man, I, that that's awesome. Like, I've never, you know, we never really talked about this before, but I think that's like I super... I have no free time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's super significant, the things that you're doing. Um, with criminal justice reform and, and this thing that we're talking about now. But, I mean, that is super significant that, you know, in in your state that you're actually trying to reform people that go into the criminal justice reform system, you know, or not the reform system, but the criminal justice system. Um, because a lot of times, unfortunately, what happens is when you see uh, victimless crimes or such things as drug crimes, it's like, hey, you probably shouldn't do this. So I'm going to ruin your life. Yeah. So that way... You I'm going to make sure you can never get a job or never own a firearm or, you know, just totally... Screw up someone's entire life plan. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, you probably shouldn't do crack. You probably shouldn't do marijuana. But instead of telling you that and trying to show it to you and try to reform you, we're just going to ruin your life and just make sure, like like you said, that you're not going to be able to get a job. You're not going to be able to get financial aid to go to college, X, Y, and Z. So I guess that leads me to my next question. What makes you so passionate about criminal justice reform? You know, I lived right outside of Baltimore. I lived in a rough area. Uh, people were shot and stabbed literally door feet from my front door as a kid. So I saw a lot of this and I saw a lot of buddies uh, in high school who being out actually on campaigns or being in college, I've gotten notifications of them going to jail through other people or even some of them getting shot in gang violence. And it's really a shame uh, that, you know, we have kids that are just you know friends of mine who were they had a lot of potential in them just getting caught up in these sorts of things and you know if some of them had have been involved in the judicial system before but when you're young sometimes they give you a slap on a wrist and just say look here's a fine here's community service and once you're done you're done you've checked your boxes off and you're supposed to be an upstanding citizen well i think we need to have a more comprehensive you know plan in that and you know I don't know exactly where it came from that that passion to do it but I just sort of sitting in those courtrooms in teen court I think is probably what set me in seeing basically I remember the first time I sat on it we had this kid um, who was bullying another kid at school and one day he snapped the kid who was getting bullied and he beat the ever-living shit out of his bully. And it got the cops called on him for it. And I was I was sitting there, and I'm like, well, good. That kid finally stood up for himself. Well, obviously, I couldn't say that. Um, and the kids 
came in, they sat down, and there's a real judge. We have an act, the actual district judge for our area sits down there, and they'll go through and read it like a regular trial. But there's no audience. We have a real bailiff, a St. Mary's County Sheriff's officer will be there. Um, so it's it seems kind of real and legit, especially if you're like seven years old and you're getting ushered into a court, an actual courtroom, by a bailiff. So it's got that scared straight mentality to it. But what really hooked me was when the kid sat down and he started talking, and he didn't really, the kid that had bullied him, he didn't really seem remorseful, and. The kids afterward, when they were deliberating the whole case, just the amount of care and passion they had talking about this. It's not like they were like, oh, well, you know, he did a wrong thing, he did a bad thing, so let's just do this, 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 and this. They actually had deep, meaningful conversations about what they could do to actually help these kids out because all of them had been in their exact same shoes. And that kid was going to show back up to that court. And he was going to sit on that side. And in fact, I saw him back in the court and saw him back on that side of the room. And he was quiet at first, but then he got really involved into it too. And some of these kids, you know, they're required to serve on that court for a little bit. Some of them stay on and volunteer afterwards. And seeing that sort of passion in young kids, you know, half my age, that was really cool to see. And I was like, well, if it, you know, it's two days out of a month that I have to dedicate and it has that much of an impact on someone's life, why not? I, I think that's amazing, man. Um, and I don't say that lightly. And also, I, I think that adds a new, you know, connotation to the word of, you know, reviewed by, a, you know, a, a panel of your peers. I mean, literally, if you're a kid, you're getting reviewed by kids that have been in the same situation. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. It takes it takes you know a jury of your peers to a whole new level because you go into a courtroom, you don't know who those people are. They may never have been through the judi- judicial system in any sense of the word, or you know they've got really no relation to you. But we have these kids who have actually been through it and they know what they, what to expect from it, and that adds a whole another level of understanding and empathy in their decision making process. So. You're obviously involved in heavily involved in conservative and Republican politics. How receptive are conservatives to the message of criminal justice reform? I mean, you you spoke about the First Step Act, but people in your state, how are those conservatives receptive? So it's Maryland's interesting because we don't have many conservatives that are elected into office. Now, on a lower level. Um, a lot of them, like you know, folks like you and I, individuals on that level, people are on the Republican side. They're not completely against it, but they're still not warmed up to it. You know, they're still firm believers in you know what Nixon used to say about security. We need to make sure we have a safe and secure country, and they still are kind of believers in that law and order society that they think the police exists there to keep law and order. I believe that we need to sort of move over to the peacekeeper status of police a little bit more, and you hinted at that earlier, but when you actually get to the elected folks, they're a little bit more warm up to the ideas, which is really interesting because the people who are electing them up there really aren't. But I know, you know, the state senator I worked for, Steve Waugh, he was rather accepting of that sort of idea of putting through reasonable criminal justice reform policies, as much as a state can do, obviously. But he, you know, loved when I talked about the teen court program because I was doing it at that time and the experience I had with living classrooms. Uh, He was like, these are great things that we should be doing. And I'm like, yeah, it's a shame that more Republicans aren't doing it. He's just like, you're right, and I don't know why we're not. And it makes sense. You know, we used to be the small government party. But... Now we want to spend millions of dollars on police forces, making sure they have military-grade equipment to protect us. Um, And instead of protecting us, they're there writing us tickets and giving us fines and locking up kids for dumb reasons and victimless crimes. And I think Maryland is in a position where we could easily be warmed up to it if we actually pushed with a, a campaign there of criminal justice reform because we have cities like Baltimore, 
because we have all of these, you know, terrible issues that we can see in any, you know, part of Maryland and, you know, the way that um, crime is treated. And we see a lot of, you know, our youth who are getting involved into a lot of, we, you can see this across the country now that we're so interconnected, you know, kids nowadays in elementary school have iPhones and I had a Motorola droid when I was a, when I was a kid, I still have a Motorola, that's how much I like their brand. And there was a flip phone, you didn't get internet and I, I had like 20 text messages I could send a month, I think. So I had to be very selective with who I, who I would text. I think I had unlimited calls and I would call people. But now, you know, kids got unlimited text, unlimited call, unlimited internet. They can see all this stuff. So when they see some kid do something stupid or, you know, they on, on online, they can go and mimic it. And that's what kids do. We mimic the actions of people we see. Hope that was a roundabout way of answering your question. No, I, I don't even know if I did. But. You, you did, you did. You kind of, you kind of sounded like a boomer there for a minute, a little bit. Uh, I, I did. I noticed. That's why I cut myself off and stopped you, talking. You sounded. Uh, you know, I'm older than you, but you sounded older than me there for a minute. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of technology. Um, I'm trying to think. There was some. There's something I was gonna go, but I forgot. Okay. Yeah. So I remember now. So we've been talking a lot about Baltimore. We've been talking a lot about you being involved in conservative and Republican politics, but I want to pivot to your involvement in YAL and liberty-minded politics. Yeah, so like most things in my life, it was a frantic and random decision (laughs) that had no basic and logical reason. Um, I was working at a summer job in college, and... It was a museum right next to our college, and I was loving it. It was great, but they weren't paying me really anything. So I got a call from someone in Yale, and I'd been to a Yale summit back when those were still a thing uh, in Pittsburgh back in 2017, I think, 2016, 2017. And I really liked it. But one of the biggest complaints I had was that Yale was doing all these great things, but they weren't doing anything with it we were teaching all these kids these great values that i agreed with of just being able to live your own life and then we didn't really tell them what to do other than to recruit other people and you know just like having these ideas is going to be good enough well i I believe if you're doing something like that you need to take it a step further well i got a call that summer last summer and I can't remember who it was from, but they were like, hey, so we've got a campaign that we're doing. Uh, we could potentially send you to Minnesota, to Missouri, or to any of the other deployments we had going on last summer. And I said, well, you're paying me more, and I get to see a part of the country I've never been to. So sure, why not? So I packed my bags. I went out there into the blistering heat of southwest Missouri and started working on this campaign. And as I've mentioned, it wasn't my first, so I had a little bit more experience than most of the people there. And I remember walking into the room that Barry and Reed were sitting in the front of, that little Airbnb, and we had the whole team there for both deployments. And looking around, and I was just like, wow, I am in a room full of weirdos. That's libertarian. Welcome to the libertarian world. Yeah, welcome to world. the libertarian movement. <laughs> and I got to meet pretty much. We got to meet everyone pretty well because both you know teams switched up at, at certain points in time. Right. And you know everyone was great. I've never worked with a better group of people than I did in Missouri. And at that point, I was like, "This is great. I'm enjoying what we're doing. We're going out. We're talking to voters. We're having reasonable conversations with them." And you're making a difference. Every day you go home and you're like, well, I may have convinced a voter, I may have convinced a few, I can do better tomorrow. Tangible results at the end of each day. Personally, if you're out, if you actually care about what you're doing, you have direct feedback every day. Well, when we won in Missouri and we got Dirk Deaton elected, I went up to Minnesota and did two campaigns up there, both of which we won, Cal Barr and Eric Mortensen. Eric Mortensen is like the Viking version of Thomas Massey. He is, I am so sad that he lost his general election to the Democrat because 
he is a Liberty candidate that we can only wish we had. Um, but we won those, so I had, we were, what, we lost Robert Stokes. So that put me at basically a 75% success rate over that summer. So I had a pretty good, you know, record there. Well, I had a last year of college, and I went off to college, and I was more active with the college Republicans. We, you know, for a year, we went underground because 2016 had done so much damage to our name and reputation on campus that we needed to work on building up our members a lot. So my senior year, I had that mentality that, well, I'm not going to be here, so I don't care if I make anyone upset. So we started doing more events in public, and we started to recruit more and started to get the buzz back up. And one of the things I did was because we had so many late-night conversations on that campaign about just anything ranging from the death penalty to our own personal stories to drunk driving. <laughs> I'm sure you remember that one. Um, and we just had these very in-depth conversations about these things, and it sort of lit a fire under me, uh, I guess, sort of speak. So I started to, to do YAL events at College Republican stuff. I started talking about, you know, bring the troops home. I started doing all these things, then the College Republicans there really liked it. So I kept doing it. And after I graduated, uh, my original plan had fallen through, and I gave uh, YAL a call, and they said, look, we're going to I need a job and they were like all right well we've got some deployments in Virginia and I went over to Virginia and I've been with them since and I think they do a lot of good work and I'm very very glad to see that we are out winning elections because it has more potential to do good for this country than any other organization out there because no one's doing what Yao is doing no one is hiring educated youth activists to go knock on doors across the country and get people elected. Yale has this goal of 250 Liberty legislators by the end of 2022. A number that's not arbitrary. It's 5% of all House seats across the country. Wouldn't that be huge? 5%. Imagine having people like Savannah Maddox all across the country who could pass CAFE Acts, who could pass Constitutional Carry, who could pass all of these pieces of legislation, which is basically the government being like, here, we're sorry we stole all of your rights away in the first place. We're just going to give them back to you now. Uh, and it's said that it takes legislation to do that. But, you know, we've been consistently conceding them, and Yala's finally putting up a good fight, I think. Well, I want to I want to go back a little bit. That was a mouthful, but I appreciate the thorough, you know, uh, explanation. Um, and it's really interesting to hear that story of yours. Uh, but I think it's interesting you say you know you were you weren't really turned on to Yale until they got into the campaigns and it's really funny because something that I remember you know as as a state chair in Young Americans for Liberty at one point I remember talking to Cliff Maloney the, the president chapter president or no the the national president and uh, him saying you know when, when Operation Win the Door was just an idea they said you know we really want to make Liberty win you know that's our slogan it started in 2016 when I got involved. It's our slogan now. Yeah, it still is. And they said, you know, how long until we make Liberty win? Like, what do we have to do? Do we get X number of people signed up? Do we get this many people to our conventions? Is that how we make Liberty win? Is that how we, you know, are we going to put on the, the love revolution that Ron Paul started in 2008? Yeah. And, and they said, or do we get Liberty candidates elected and actually take back this country through grassroots politics, through one election at a time. Exactly, one election at a time, connecting with individuals at the door, and not 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 like a lofty goal of getting like a president elected or a senator elected or a congressman elected, but taking back this country at its core uh, yep. state, which is the local level. Yeah, I mean we've talked about this a lot as to. You know, why we have not seen any LP candidates? Just because there's no structure there. They're, they're, they've gone for that lofty goal of president. They've gone for congressional races, and they haven't really built a foundation on which they can lean on. Yale is trying to build a foundation so we can eventually get there, but we understand, you know, you've got to pay your dues first. You've got to work hard. You've got to build a platform, and then from there, you can start shooting for the stars. 
I'm going to have to cut that and put it at the intro. <laughs> that was a good one right there. No, but um, no, it's, it's true. You know, I, and I think it's interesting how you got involved and how, uh, yeah, maybe changed your perspective on activism, even on campus. You know, you said you got involved with Operation Win at the Door and you started doing things on campus. But I want to go back to the Dirk Deaton election. It's like reminiscing talking about it with you. And um, I, I want to know, you know, what were some of the really good conversations that you talked to people and you had at the door in, in Mississippi? And feel free if you want to talk about another conversation you had in Virginia or X, Y, and Z. What are, what are some of those conversations like? So, I mean, it's very hit or miss as to if you're going to have a conversation with someone at the door that has a meaningful impact with you. Because we talk to a lot of people every day. And sometimes you'll talk to a lot of people who, you know, are like, oh, I love your candidate. They're great. We're going to vote for them. And you don't really continue much on there. But sometimes, and a lot of the times for me, it's a lot of really sad stories that stick with me the most. I remember walking up in this tiny town in southwest Missouri and knocking on this trailer door. I genuinely thought if I knocked on the door, if I had moved anywhere else to knock on that door, I would have fallen through the porch that they had because it was so dry rotten. And I hear someone in there, so I wait around, and I wait around a little bit more, and this old guy comes sort of creeping up from his chair over, and he's in this trailer in the middle of Missouri without air conditioning, and he really wasn't probably going to vote in the election. He kind of told me the first thing he's like well thanks for stopping by but i don't think i'm gonna live long enough to see the election i think i sat there with 30 minutes and talked about his history and just talked to him and just you know had a good conversation with him about life and just listened to him for a little bit a lot of the things that you know we do are obviously designed to educate voters and to inform them but sometimes we have to realize that what separates us from Democrats and Republicans is that we also have a sense of humanity that they seem to be lacking a lot of. You know, we've talked about this beforehand uh, with um, David Koch, his passing away, and the left just completely stomping on, you know, basically being like, good, a, good, a bad man died. And... It's sad to see that stuff, and you know that that's one of the things that I like to think liberty separates us because we think all life matters, and every person matters, so let's treat it as such. Yeah, I mean, the work we do when we go out and knock on doors, I mean, even with our philosophy, it's not because we just, we want to, a lot of, a lot of you know, liberal people will say, oh, well, you just hate poor people if, you, if you're a fiscal conservative, and you know, when you really go out there and you knock on doors, especially in rural areas, that they, you know, most people open up the door and say, you know, no one's knocked on my door in decades. I haven't talked to anyone yeah. in so long. And um, the conversations are just genuine. I mean, I remember before I got on Operation One at the door, I was uh, volunteering on the Greg Abbott campaign and uh, to get my foot in the door and try to, you know, do different things. And I literally remember the very first door I knocked on. There was a woman that broke down in tears about property taxes and how it just it really hurt her family and how hard it is to pay that. It's amazing how much certain people are impacted by government and have such a deep passion for very specific things. And it kind of blows you away sometimes when you're out having these conversations because you realize how one small minute change in a law can totally destroy someone's entire family. Yeah, and, and, and to go back to the point of, of us just talking about how we care about individuals and how, you know, what separates us from your generic Republicans and Democrats. Um, I, I even remember uh, here recently working on campaigns, I, I talked to someone um, at the door that said, you know, I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican, um, but, you know, I, I recently have gotten hurt and I've had to claim disability. And, you know, I paid into it for so many years and, you know, I think I deserve it, but I find it hard to go out and vote and be very vocal about how I believe because I feel like a hypocrite, you know? And, you know, he told me, he's like, you know, I don't really vote anymore. And I started talking to him about our candidates, started talking to him about him and I, and I said, you know, I think 
you know, what separates you and I from most individuals is we actually think about the way we vote. We think about our politics and our philosophy before we go in and cast a vote because we know it can affect so many people on so many different levels. It's, it's very meaningful. And by the end of our conversation, this individual said, you know what, I'm going to get out and vote again. I'm going to stand for my, my principles, my values. And, and essentially, like that's what I thought was so phenomenal is that this guy reminded me so much of me and the organization that I was working for and representing because he said, you know, I, I feel conviction. I feel a conviction in what I believe, but I also feel, you know, that I have to stand and represent those values. I can't be a hypocrite, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think these experiences, for anyone that's, that's listening and wanting to get involved, you know, Young Americans for Liberty, Operation Went at the Door is the way to do it. You know, get involved, uh, t- you know, have these amazing conversations. And I think once you get involved with Operation Went at the Door, it's, it's just a life-altering experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I say that about, I've said that I, about Yao Khan and Young not, Americans for Liberty. Is, you may say that, and people may laugh at that, that it's life-altering, but you talk to any OWG door knocker, and they're going to say the exact same thing. No, you're exactly right because, and I, and you've you've worked for Republican campaigns. I've worked for Republican campaigns, and we've worked on Republican campaigns for Operation Went the Door and Young Americans for Liberty. But I genuinely think that the conversations I've had while working for this organization and doing the good work that needs to be done for these candidates for the cause of liberty, I've never been able to have the conversations I've had, and I really love connecting with individuals in that manner. Yeah, it, it definitely is meaningful. And anyone interesting could go, interested can go to yaliberty.org and can go to Operation Win at the Door, and you can apply through there, and it's super easy. Um, best decision I made really changed my life, and those conversations you have with people, they can really, they can really make you sort of be a little self-reflective and think about stuff. Um, so I think it's a, it's a great experience you know, to see the country – one of the things we also don't talk about is that you spend a month in areas you're not familiar with. After leaving Southwest Missouri, I had infinitely more of an understanding as to why people love Trump so much. This was an area that the, in McDonald County, we talked about how you know CNN talked about McDonald County because so many people voted there that they weren't expecting to for Trump because most people just didn't vote. People were registering to vote just so they could go cast a ballot for Trump. That's how much they loved him. And when you see people, you know, that trailer I described for that old man, that was pretty normal for people. Everyone sort of lived in these dilapidated trailers all over the place. There, there was just no jobs. There was no economy to speak of there. And these people have been putting their faith and trust into Democrats and Republicans even. And big government. And big government for so long. And someone came along and was like, I understand you and I want to help you. I understand why they fell so largely behind him because someone was like, we acknowledge that your life is terrible right now and that we're going to try and do something with it. Of course, there's going to be those people that say, you know, he's really done nothing for them. And that argument can be made. But just the fact that they feel recognized by a president, that's how meaningful it is to them. Well, I think that's a great way to end the podcast. I appreciate you participating in this interview and coming on the program i think this conversation we have has just been freaking phenomenal yeah i talk a lot yeah dude and and even i know we talk a lot in general but uh i've even learned some stuff about you that i didn't even know so like i said i appreciate coming on the show and uh hopefully we can get one of these things going uh, again sometime yeah thanks for having me And that was it tonight. Our podcast tonight was brought to you by our music contributor, Franco Luciano. I also want to let everybody know that you can find Liberty Talks Podcast now on Apple Podcasts, on Google, and Spotify. Yes, we've expanded here at Liberty Talks where you can find our podcast at most of the mainstream podcast hosts. So please check it out. Spread the word and continue listening to Liberty Talks podcast every single week.